and welcome back to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. Cole, how's it going, man? It's going all right. How about you, Mike? Uh, you know, can't complain. Can't complain. We both have uh, kind of a lot going on, don't we? I was going to say, yeah. It's uh, I feel like I'm getting less sleep now than even when I normally do. But uh, yeah, we both have second ch- our second ch- ch- child should be here what, but the next month between the two of yeah. us. Yeah, we both have very pregnant spouses right now. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. So has there, any, uh, has there been any food cravings that you've had to like run out at midnight and go grab? Uh, no. She's uh, she she does have this like one like sandwich place that she likes a lot, and mm-hmm. she like I can see it because she'll order it through the Uber Eats app or whatever when she's right. at work, so she can pick up her lunch break. And uh, so I see that like pop up on my because we share an Uber Eats account, obviously, and uh, I see that pop up a good. Um, at least once a day. You know, we day. were watching. So funny. We were watching Lady and the Tramp. You remember that movie with Nathan yeah, yeah, the yeah. other day? No. And uh, and I, I guess at the beginning of the movie, the the main couple is having a baby, and the the wife is pregnant. And there's a little scene with the dad running out in a robe at midnight to go get some like uh, I don't know Chinese food or something like that. But gone are those days, I suppose. With Uber Eats, oh, you don't have yeah. to do it. No, just it's so it. much exactly. It's much easier. You just pay somebody to bring the cravings to you at midnight. Yeah, and we've got it pretty good, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think we've had it pretty much as good as it's been for a while. <laughs> but uh, yeah. speaking of um, Lady in the Tram, I haven't thought about that movie in, in a long time. But uh, isn't it, at the end of that movie? Don't they have like their? Don't their puppies like half of them look like the Tramp and half of them look like Lady or something? That, that sounds that sounds right. Because I'm pretty sure that when I saw that when I was like you know three or four, I, I just assumed like if you had puppies or two dogs that mated, half of them looked like the mom and half of them like that. I had no <laughs> idea that like you'd get a mutt um, for some breed. So I, the first time I saw a mutt, I was like, "What is this?" And uh, that's when I realized you can't so, take Lady and the Tramp as as uh, giving your biology lessons. Yeah, they're giving bad information. It's it misinformation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anyways. It's, uh, oh yeah, we're on a podcast right now. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. Yeah. So um, that being said, uh, we are going to do an accredited episode tonight. And um, we're going to be discussing hep A and hep B. Um, kind of treatment, prevention, um, just some summary information about both, both viruses. And from a treatment standpoint, there's not a ton to go through, definitely more on the hep B side. Um, but even that's, you know, not a ton of drugs available comparatively, you know, it's like HIV or something like that. Um, but definitely still important nonetheless. And, uh, I think, I don't think we've actually done a, a episode on hep B or a in the past, maybe like the vaccinations, but do you remember doing one on probably not them specifically? Yeah, yeah. We probably touched on the vaccinations, but yeah, it's very much a kind of a public health, episode you know a lot of like who's at risk who should be vaccinated who you know uh should be uh managed after an exposure that sort of thing so yeah i think it's interesting yeah i've had some some experiences with some of these things and i'll I'll, i have a couple anecdotes as we go but uh yeah (laughs) well we we always look forward to your anecdotes and uh stay stay tuned you don't want to miss them and uh, yeah, so 
it's credited episode, like I said. Um, so once again, we're partnering uh, with our friends over at FreeCE.com. And so for those of you who are already members of FreeCE.com and have unlimited membership, to, you have access to all of their content. The podcasts are included as well. Um, I think we have over 60 of them uh, at this point. And so lots of, uh, of content available for you all. And if you're not a member of FreeCE, definitely check them out. We've been talking about them pretty much every other week for two years now. So I'm, I'm sure you've heard this spiel, but if you've not checked them out yet, definitely encourage you to do so. Thanks to them for continuing to partner with us. Um, at some point during this episode, we will give you a super secret password. And so once you're done listening to the episode, you can go to freece.com's website. And um, when you click on this episode to get your um, credit and take the post activity test, it'll ask for the password um, to which, you know, you would, we'll give it to you in a little bit at some point. Uh, but, we we used to give it in the show notes, but we had to we had to uh, change it to the secret password because some people were cheating, unfortunately. <laughs> I wonder if they actually did cheat, or we just we just you know decided to preemptively stop that. Because would there have been a way to prove it? No, I no, I probably not. Um, and I mean, then I'm just gonna presume all our listeners are above board, and we just did it just. In oh case. man, yeah, I don't want to uh, blame yeah, any yeah. of you. Well. Let's just say there's there is you know not to humble brag there's a lot of you so there the odds that some people would cheat on the C's is pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, All if right. it was me and I was looking at the show notes and I saw the password, I was I'd be like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're just it, doing especially this especially as a topic that you know you're like I'm pretty familiar with this because then you mm-hmm. take the t- then you take the post activity test and you're like, man, look how smart I am. You get an extra <laughs> little boost of confidence. Yeah. So there's that. There's that trick. Yeah. All um, right. So, what do you want to start off with? Hep, yeah, why don't we I start with? A? Yeah, let's start with Hep A, um, because there, as you'll see, there isn't a lot that you need to do in most cases as far as specific antiviral treatment, like for instance Hep C, um, and even to a smaller degree Hep B. So we'll start with Hep A, um, which is of course caused by the hepatitis A virus. That's what it's called. Interestingly, humans are the only known reservoir of Hep A, so you're not going to contract it from an animal. Though I think I don't know this. For, I don't know if they can or not, but I think animals can might be able to contract it, but maybe not carry it. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Either way, humans are the only known reservoir. So um, the reason why there's not a lot of pharmacotherapy that you have to know for this is because usually it's self-limiting um, and it does not become chronic. Fulminant hepatic failure occurs in less than 1% of cases. So in most instances, it's not going to be a severe problem. Um, And if you've been infected, it does confer lifelong immunity, um, but not as uh, potent immunity, I guess, as the vaccination. So there is, of course, a Hep A vaccine, um, uh, which can prevent hepatitis A. And over the last 25 years plus, um, has significantly decreased the amount of hepatitis A um, uh, diagnoses in the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, and did, did you already say the transmission route or the route of transmission? I, I didn't. No. Okay, so I, um, for those of you watching the video version, uh, it'll probably be on Cole's camera anyway, but I realized that I couldn't see the timer on, on my, my screen, so I had to get up while Cole was talking and uh, secretly adjust my computer. He didn't even know it. We have to make sure we don't go long because that's always our problem. Is we go long. Right. But then, uh, but then after I realized I wasn't hearing Cole, I was like, "Oh shoot! I have no idea what he just talked about." 
Um, but yeah, so uh, Hep A is transmitted by, yeah, wait for it, fecal to oral route, everyone's favorite route of administration, and uh, is is something that is oftentimes, I mean, it's person to person contact, but it's usually when it's you know a person comes into contact or it consumes contaminated food or water, and there there are some some risk factors um, that can you know make somebody more susceptible, uh, obviously transmission within households so if you're living with someone that has hep a there's that that higher um, that higher likelihood of contracting it sexual transmission um, can be a factor uh, residential um, institution transmission and um, also like daycare centers as well contact with contaminated food and water usually you know consumption of raw or undercooked shellfish vegetables things like that consumption of foods that are contaminated obviously by um infected food handlers and you know so obviously if you're somebody in a kitchen or something like that um, that could be can be transmitted that way and also uh, from a blood transfusion or illicit drug use can also be a, a risk factor as well yeah interestingly so if you um, cook the meat so heat can uh, basically kill the virus I think it has to be 185 degrees Fahrenheit um, Cooked foods, though, can transmit hepatitis A if the cooking temperature did not reach that or if the food is contaminated after cooking. So anecdote number one, I remember working in the community and I, up the road, uh, I guess I won't call out exactly where it was, but um, basically there was a, a, a Zaxby's that had an, an employee, I guess somebody who handled the food, contract hep A or have a lab-diagnosed case of hep A. So, of course, as a public health concern, so they have to, I guess, release that information. Um, so, effectively, anyone who had <laughs> eaten at that Zaxby's restaurant over the previous few weeks was susceptible. And so, we'll talk about who, you know, in a post-exposure um, situation should get vaccinated or should get, like, immunoglobulin. And it's not everybody, but I remember a substantial amount of people coming through the pharmacy during this period <laughs> to get their, you know... Hep A vaccination, citing this Zaxby's issue because of this um, guy or gal who who had Hep A. So, um, yeah. But but, but here's not, the thing. not great if it happens in that situation. It, here's the thing that maybe you're not taking into account, and that is how good that chicken finger plate is, because <laughs> obviously you're going to take certain risks in that scenario where you're still going to be able to procure that plate of chicken. So that, and it, yeah. I would say it's worth the risk. I mean, especially if you say no to the coleslaw, get some extra fries. That's it, the that's, way I do it. You you know that you've you've arrived at the ultimate success as far as a chain of restaurants. If people are like, well, I could have gotten hepatitis A there, but <laughs> I'll just run to the pharmacy real quick, get a vaccine, and that way I can go back. <laughs> like you got to have some pretty good food. Some people you gotta, you gotta respect it. Some people kind of dog on their chicken fingers. No, with with a little Zach sauce. It's the it's the people that have stuff. a lot of raising canes by them. They, they it's those that tend to uh, tend tend to talk some trash on Zaxby's. It's fine, you know, whatever. They're they're good too. Cane. Yeah, tomato, tomato, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't tell them that. So um, interestingly, the vaccine and like um, standard recommendations of all infants being vaccinated has not been around as long as I thought. Um, so for both of us, I, I suppose it wouldn't have been necessarily recommended across the board that all infants were vaccinated when we were popping through 
because um, they they had some recommendations for high risk individuals in '95, and then in '99, I think, is when they said like all infants should be vaccinated. So, of course, the rates have steadily declined since that time, and they continue to decline um, up until about 2014. And then they had some periods of increase between 2014 and 2019, um, and they cite things like homelessness and um, and drug use and that sort of thing. Um, but overall, it has stayed significantly low. And generally, um, outbreaks that sort of happen are related to some sort of food contamination. So, for instance, there was um, a situation in Miss- Michigan where 213 cases of Hep A were detected across 23 schools. And then there were also 29 other cases from 13 schools in Maine at that same time. And they were all related to contaminated frozen strawberries of a common source. So the same Jeez. the same grouping of strawberries that, that came through. So usually it's related to, to, uh, to food. Yeah, I, there was a small part of me for just a second when you started saying... You know, that makes me think of this time, and I was so hoping you were just going to tell the exact same story about Zaxby's again. <laughs> I think that would that's, be... That's anecdote number two. We need to wait for the we need to wait for the people who skip through the first half of the podcast and just go to the second half to hear the, uh, you know, the um, the password, and then they'll hear the story again when I tell it. Because then a couple people, you know a couple people that were like half listening would be like, wait, wait a second. Did I, did I hit rewind or something? Why is he telling the story again? That, that, just that's keep them on their, I got to keep them on their toes. Absolutely. So typical manifestations um, dealing with hep A from an acute standpoint, um, and really the hep A infection overall, it's self-limited illness. So that's one of the, I guess you'd say, good aspects of it, um, assuming there's no complications um, from having it. But um, fulminant hepatic failure is like 1% of cases. It's, it's a small percentage. It's not you know, the average patient that contracts this. Uh, from an incubation period standpoint, we're thinking around 28 days on average. Um, it can take uh, up to 50 days. So the range is like 15 to 50 days. The, the symptomatic illness um, is going to happen to the vast majority of patients about 70 percent or more um symptoms are more uncommon in like the younger patient population though like children less than six um a lot more likely to be asymptomatic so the gi symptoms are kind of the first to to show up so nausea vomiting um, loss of appetite patients may experience abdominal pain fever um, can also occur you know, w- within a few days to a week time, dark urine um, can start to appear, pale stools, basically lacking that bilirubin pigment. Um, things like uh, jaundice, um, paritis may start to occur as well. Um, early signs and symptoms usually though diminish uh, as jaundice appears. It's kind of showing like it's, it's natural progression. So jaundice typically peaks within two weeks. Um, besides that, the, the patient may, um, you know, also should be evaluated to make sure that they're not pregnant, um, because obviously in, a, a, a acute hepatitis A infection, um, in a pregnant patient is going to increase the risk of, um, preterm labor and also gestational complications as well. Um, there isn't really any specific symptoms or manifestations, um, specific to patients who are immunocompromised. Um, so we, we don't see a, a, a big, you know, subset of these patients that are, are 
significantly more impacted or, you know, based on their HIV status or something like that. Um, from an, a lab standpoint, that's probably, um, if you're not used to seeing elevated uh, liver enzymes, that's probably the thing that would be most shocking. Um, for example, like serum aminotransferases, oftentimes, you know, greater than a thousand international units per deciliter. Um, that's that, w- that would not be great to see on a, uh, it's higher a, than uh, we, yeah. Higher than we like, for sure. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's it's something that uh, really high um, LFTs and then um, serum aminotransferases peak approximately one month um, after exposure to the virus, and then they will start to decline. Um, And one resource says that 75% per week. So they can come down fairly rapidly. Um, And then um, infected individuals are contagious and, and can transmit the virus to other people during the incubation period. And about um, a week or so after John disappears, they, they are still considered to be contagious. And um, H, H, uh, I almost said HIV, HAV, hepatitis A, replicates in the liver, and it's shed in the stool, which is why you get that fecal-to-oral route of administration. And, um, and it's, it's shed in high concentrations for um, two to three weeks. And, and then, again before the onset of the clinical illness in some cases. Um, so it's one of those things that they may not even be symptomatic yet and still able to transmit it. Right. So how long is it going to last? Um, it's actually not that long compared to what we're going to see with uh, Hep B and what we know of with other hepatitis infections. So full clinical and biochemical recovery is usually observed within the first two to three months. So that's 85% of people within the first two to three months with complete recovery being observed after six months in almost all patients. Um, It doesn't become chronic. Um, They can't be reinfected after recovering from the infection, though a a relapse type of thing can occur. Um, And we mentioned the 1% that might have kind of significant issues, fulminant hepatic failure, and that's really referencing severe acute liver injury that may come along with encephalopathy, um, impaired synthetic function, um, and it most commonly occurs in patients who are over 50 years old um, especially if they have other liver diseases like uh, concomitant Hep B or Hep C um, infection, uh, and those patients might require a liver transplant in those instances. Um, there's also extra hepatic manifestations that can happen um, that can be associated with Hep A, the most common being um, an evanescent rash in arthralgias. That's in about 10 to 15% of patients. Other things you might see. Um, uh, glomerulonephritis, optic neuritis, myocarditis, thrombocytopenia, aplastic anemia. Um, so some other things that can uh, pop along with the normal symptoms of Hep A. And looking at it from a you know a diagnosis standpoint, because I feel like the hepatitis labs in general can um, be very confusing when it comes to the different antibodies and whatnot. Hep A is a is a little bit easier. I feel like to to kind of navigate when it comes to lab interpretation. So, and I guess really the reason I even kind of differentiate between that and what's mentioned this is because I know in my own experience, when we were doing the hep C management, uh, there'd be some providers that were getting some of the preliminary labs and they would order a total hep A. And if that's positive, it's hard to, you know, you can't really tell between an acute or you know, just past exposure um, from a total antibody. So usually um, in the case of a suspected hepatitis A, you would draw a serum IgM hep A antibody. 
and obviously the IgM is going to be detectable, you know, very quickly in the acute phase, and then is is usually detectable for about three to six months after um, the patient's infected. It, 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 the long-term labs that will show up is the serum IgG antibodies. And, and so if you have a patient, you know, who you, you're getting a, a total on, you can get an IgM, and then obviously if the total is positive and the IgM is, is negative, then you know the IgG is the one that's positive and it's the, the past exposure um, that's, that's making the total go up. But the IgM is the, the more acute factor that we would be looking for and would be showing a uh, recent infection, if that's positive, or at least a, a relapse. Yep. Um, there are some other things that you'd want to have on your differential diagnosis. Um, so we are familiar with hep A, B, and C. Turns out there's also uh, hepatitis D and hepatitis E. Um, hepatitis A and E are only acute infections that are transmitted fecally to orally, um, whereas hep B and C can present acute and chronically. They are transmitted by body fluids. Um, with hepatitis D um, being able to lead to acute hepatitis in patients with hepatitis B virus. Regardless, consider the other hepatitis viral infections. Um, also, uh, uh, some other things like Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, yellow fever, um, HSV, adenovirus, HIV, things of that nature to include on your differential. Yeah. All right, so from a treatment standpoint, you, know, you, you have a patient diagnosed with hep A or you identify a patient that has a, the, you know, an acute phase of hep A and we're trying to look at treatment. Well, the problem is it's not a great, you know, there's not really any treatment options that we would go to like a true antiviral or anything like that. Um, it's pretty much supportive care. Um, and the, the medications, obviously, that we should be kind of keeping an eye out for, you know, as far as, you know, at least temporarily discontinuing um, would be anything that could affect the liver in a negative way. And so patient, going through the patient's med list, making sure that you're not, at, there's no offending, potentially offending agents that um, are being continued at that time. But other than that, it, it's, it's kind of just a matter of keep monitoring the patient and, and, giving them supportive care along the way. Also, if it's a patient who, you know, it's, it's reached the point of fulminant uh, hepatic failure and you know, they're needing aggressive supportive therapy, they should ideally be transferred to a center that's capable of, of performing a liver transplant if, if it's going in that direction. Right. Um, so really the best thing we can do is try to prevent someone from contracting hepatitis A. Um, of course, we have the vaccination. We also have immune globulin in certain places. And then um, since it's fecal oral route transmission, um, attention to hygienic practices, especially if there's like a known um, uh, diagnosis in your office space or your school or something like that. Um, generally speaking, ACIP gives good recommendations um, about uh, vaccination and that sort of thing. Um uh, there are um, a variety of indications based on patients' risk categories, um, and there's also recommendations about whether individuals should have um, a prophylactic vaccination after they've been exposed, and then who should have it um, before they might be exposed, for instance, if they're traveling internationally and that sort of thing. Um, so just some general recommendations, and I'll talk more specifics about the vaccine in a minute, but um, all children 12 to 23 months um, are suggested to um, have the vaccination. 
all children and adolescents 2 to 18 years old who haven't received it um, would need their um, adolescent catch-up vaccinations, and then infants 6 to 11 months, so under a year, who may be traveling internationally, um, it might be recommended uh, to get the vaccine. Um, and they suggest not counting the travel-related dose towards the routine two-dose series that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, there are a number of individuals who would be at increased risk for contracting hepatitis A, and that's something to consider. Um, people who are traveling or working in countries that have high rates of hep A, men who have sex with men, um, individuals who um, use injection or non-injection illegal drugs, um, people who may have occupational exposures like those who um, may be working with H hepatitis infected primates or in a research laboratory or I suppose in a medical situation where um, uh, they might be exposed. Um, those who are homeless and then um, unvaccinated folks who um, in an outbreak setting who are at risk for um, hep A vaccination, they're at risk for severe disease, of course. So um, those are some who may be at risk for developing or for contracting hep A. I do like uh, as far as like indications for vaccination um, at the very end of a, a long list. It, it just went under other individual recommendations in this one resource I'm looking at. And it just says any person who requests vaccination. Like, well, <laughs> like, uh, all right. That's pretty much finalizes it at the end. I like it. And you know, when those people came after their Zaxby's here, yep. they gave them the vaccine. Guess you what? <clears throat> you guys were fine. right there. They got it. <laughs> So what about protection following exposure? Um, so there are certain situations. Um, you didn't include this when you were going through the indications, did you? I didn't. No. Okay, I didn't think so. I was looking ahead at this part. Um, individuals who uh, would warrant post-exposure protection, either by getting the, uh, the, uh, the vaccine um, after the fact or um, either getting immunoglobulin by itself or in addition to the vaccine is, is another option. Um, but... Patients would be uh, candidates possibly for that post-exposure um, treatment if they have close personal contacts to an individual um, with laboratory-confirmed hep A, you know, sexual contacts, household contacts, um, if they've shared illicit drugs, um, that, you know, be something that uh, the patient would probably benefit from post-exposure protection. Child care contacts um, in the setting of one or more um, cases of hep A among children or staff, uh, or if it's two or more household cases um, of center attendees, then those would also um, that would that would also warrant getting post exposure treatment. Uh, food handlers uh, as well. Um, it's definitely reasonable in, in the setting uh, if. If there's a even a potential exposure to Hep A, um, it would probably be a good idea to at least get the vaccine if you haven't gotten it previously. But um, other than that, though, you know the hygiene um, practices is, is really the the best thing to be advocating as far as reducing transmission and and lowering the risk. Hand washing, obviously, very important for overall health in general and, and disease transmission. But uh, anytime, you know, using the restroom in public, you know, changing diapers, anywhere that could be um, but even a potential contamination, preparing or eating food, definitely hand washing should be done. Uh, I feel like that should be common knowledge at this point, but definitely right. important. Uh, avoiding tap water, raw foods uh, in areas with poor sanitation, heating foods appropriately, and um, 
like cold sand inactivated at 185 degrees cooked foods can transmit the um, hep a if it's not uh, prepared to that temperature and then chlorine iodine and disinfecting solutions um, can be effective for for cleaning and inactivating uh, hep a on surfaces and whatnot so let me touch on the vaccines themselves because there are a few different ones that you can get um, and some are indicated for certain ages some are not Notably, they're all inactivated vaccines, so none of them are live vaccines. Uh, so there's three. There's Havrix, Hep A. There's Vacta, which sounds a lot like that villain from Stranger Things. You watch Stranger Things? No, I never did. Doggone. I know. I that's like one that, that everybody, everyone's told me. I think I probably would, but now there's like four seasons, and there's no way I have time to sit down and do that. So God, just, it's, a good it's on the back burner. Especially on, the on first. The back burner. You got to watch the first season. Just if you pretend like the other ones aren't like a thing just watch the first it's good i think the the villain of the most recent one was called vecna so oh. anyways this he, which i think is a he was preventing vaccine or, or uh, preventing hepatitis a transmission so he was a secret hero so this is vacta uh, and then twin ricks which is a combined hep a and hep b vaccine so Havrix, which i feel like is the one i would always give um is indicated for um ages one to 18 with a, uh, a certain dosage and then um, over 18 with a bit of a higher dosage. They're all intramuscular. Um, it's two doses. You get the first dose now or whenever, and then the second dose needs to be 6 to 12 months after that. Notably, if somebody's traveling... Um, the recommend if they don't think if you if the time frame is such that you're not going to be able to get both doses in before they're traveling they say just get them with the first dose and uh just make sure they have at least one uh, but for normal folks who who are not going to be doing that zero and then six to twelve months for havrics um vacta same age groups different doses for adolescents and adults um, but they give a bit of a broader range. You get the first dose, and the second dose needs to be within 6 to 18 months for the second dose. Um, Twinrix, uh, notably, cannot be used in pediatrics, so this is only adults, and it has a couple of different um, recommended dosing intervals. There's a primary kind of normal dosing interval, um, and then there's, uh, there's the accelerated dosing. And I think I said each of these were two doses. That's just for Havrix and Vacta. Twin Ricks, it depends on which one you go with. So with the primary dosing schedule, you get one at zero, one, and six months. So a total of three doses, zero, one, and six months. But likely for an individual who's traveling, and if you want to have immunity faster, then they have the accelerated dosing schedule, which is zero. Uh, you get one, you get your first dose, you get another one at seven days, 21 days, and 30 days. So you get four doses in a month, and then presumably when you are back, 12 months later, you get an additional booster dose. So it's actually a total of five doses that you end up getting. And that's with the twin ricks. And the, uh, wait, did you see if you get five doses of twin ricks total? Oh, sorry. Four doses. You get it at zero. You get, you get one, then you get another one seven days later. Then you get another one, um, 20 at 21 to 30 days. So Wait, I was, and you're saying that's the, uh, the, that's the, the normal vaccination schedule. That's the accelerated schedule. Oh, I was going to say, schedule. I'm like, what? I missed that part. I was yeah, like, normal that's what I get for looking for it. This is how we, uh, this is how professional I are. We're <laughs> hashing this out in the middle of the podcast, but normal uh, is zero, one and six months. Okay. Accelerated is zero days, 
seven days, and then the third one is 21 to 30 days. So they give a, a range for that. So three doses in the month for the accelerated, and then an additional booster at 12 months. Good deal. Yeah, so that was a test. It was just, just uh, making sure Thanks you were on your me. toes. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. I did misspeak. I said five, but it's four. I did oh, misspeak. See, I, 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 yeah, that's why I was stopping you. And uh, no, uh, but uh, the other thing I was going to mention too with the Hep A vaccine is sometimes if people are getting it um, the first dose and they have a trip, that's you know, the reason they're getting it is because they're going on a trip outside of the country or somewhere that you know Hep A is more prevalent. Um, I, there is situations I've had conversations where the patient is is kind of worried that they're not going to be able to go on their trip or whatever because they've only received one of the vaccinations. Um, typically, you get like 95% immunity after the first dose. Sometimes in more immunocompromised situations or things like that, they may give like um, immunoglobulin along with it, but um, you get a lot of uh, immunity after the first dose. It's not like you have to postpone trips or anything like that. Uh, right. That just popped in my mind, so I want to make sure I threw my two cents in there about that. Right. So that's pretty All much right. it for Epe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got anything else? No. Um, I do want to make sure we give the the uh, password though before we move on. So Seems like the perfect we, time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ideal. Almost halfway. <laughs> um, but uh, the password for today's episode will be Hep. 24 so h e p 24 and all capital letters and uh, put that in the the uh when prompted to on the free ce's website and again freece.com is the website you're going to not our website and uh make sure that you get your one hour credit pharmacists and nurses and um, yeah anyways back to the regular scheduled program hep b moving on hep b yes um so Hep B, like we said, there's going to be a lot of similarities with what we say, but there is some um, pharmacotherapy with this, and the presentation and the prognosis is very much different with Hep B than Hep A. Um, but it's a double-stranded DNA virus. Um, hep B infection is like a, a global health problem. There's an estimated 250 million carriers of hepatitis B, of whom about 600,000 die annually with um, hep B related liver disease. Um, so not fantastic. So we're going to talk about, um, kind of summarizing some of the guidelines, um, and talking through individuals who are at high risk, who should be vaccinated, and then, um, what we do to identify it and diagnose it, who should be screened and then how to treat it too. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to, give you an idea it's kind of broken into acute and chronic phases and and so we'll talk in obviously more detail as we go through these but um it, depending on the lab you know that is, is uh is given or, or received from after the patient's you know kind of initial workup and everything it, that can kind of dictate on, on whether we assuming it's a, it's an acute or chronic you know patient's basically a carrier um but the Long-term complications of, of Hep B, um, even if they're they're in a more of a suppressed, you know, they're a carrier, but they're not having like active flare-ups and whatnot. Um, their long-term complications, including like risk for um, hepatocellular carcinoma, um, risk of patients getting or progressing to having cirrhosis, things like that, extra hepatic manifestations as well, um, are all things that we're trying to avoid. And so we want to make sure that we're monitoring these patients closely, even if they're not having um, acute type symptoms. But um, 
you know, as far as the laboratory testing, um, LFTs in the acute setting will be very elevated in uh, 1,000 to 2,000 um, are typically seen during that, that acute phase. ALT is typically higher than AST. And serum bilirubin, uh, it can be normal as far as patients that have um, an enteric hepatitis. As it progresses, then that those those uh, that bilirubin may become uh, or fall out of that normal range. Also, the prothrombin time is another thing that can, in a lot of cases, is considered to be like the best indicator for prognosis. Um, if patients who you recover uh, when their patients uh, when the uh, their LFTs normalize. Um, that's usually going to occur within like a one to four month period. If they're having persistent elevation in their LFTs, um, specifically ALT, if it's been going on for um, more than six months, we would assume that it's kind of progressed to the chronic hepatitis stage. And obviously we're still trying to get those liver enzymes down, but we, we know that we're going to be, this is more than it for the long haul basically. Right. Um, and even in an acute infection, for the most part, the treatment is mainly supportive. And the way that you know somebody has an acute infection, uh, we'll go through the the liver panel a little more uh, detailed in a minute, but you would detect um, the hepatitis B surface antigen as well as an immunoglobulin M antibody to the hepatitis B core antigen. And that would be an indicator that, um, that the patient is in the acute phase. So treatment is mainly supportive. Um, the likelihood of liver failure from an acute Hep B um, virus is less than 1%, so kind of similar to the Hep A with the severe complications in those rates. Um, and in an immunocompetent adult, the likelihood of progressing to chronic Hep B is less than 5%. So that's pretty solid. So in a lot of cases, we're just providing supportive care for the symptoms. Um, there are individuals who the prognosis could be worse for, patients who are immunocompromised, who also have a hep C infection, um, or have HIV if they have pre-existing liver disease or if they're older. Um, but it's still debatable whether you use antivirals in those patients um, uh, without a, a more significant indication. Um, those who may be indicated for treatment um, would be patients with a severe or a protracted course. Like if they develop a coagulopathy, their INR is, is significantly increasing over 1.5. Um, or if they have symptoms of, um, or if they have marked jaundice with a really elevated bilirubin for more than four weeks, that sort of thing. And if they do require treatment you, in the acute phase, somewhat similar to the chronic phase, um, we're going to use antivirals like penofovir or entecavir. Um, they're reasonable options. They're given as monotherapy, um, and you can stop the treatment after you confirm that the patient has cleared the hepatitis B surface antigen. So to, to confirm that, they would do two consecutive tests that are at least four weeks apart. And that's really the primary drugs that are going to be used. There's other things that can be used, lamivudine, telbividine. They can be used the duration of treatment is generally short, though um, since severe exacerbations of chronic Hep B in previously undiagnosed patients can be difficult to differentiate from an acute Hep B infection, generally they're going to say use tenofovir and entegavir because that's what's preferred in a chronic Hep B situation. Yeah, and I guess we, we should touch on the labs, I guess, uh, a little bit more in de detail with yeah. the Hep B section, but... Like you said, Cole, there, there's a. It can get very confusing, especially if you're not dealing with this um, on a regular basis. But one of the big 
things that we're sort of looking for, um, especially showing an active in infection and in, in an acute infection would be the surface antigen, um, like Cole mentioned. So um, it's HBSAG is how it's abbreviated, but it is something that you know should be included when you're assessing a patient for um, any kind of active hep B infection because that will be positive if it's an acute infection. And the other... Um, thing to keep in mind is the core antibody, um, which the core antibody, the core hep B antibody is something that can be positive after a, um, an exposure and, you know, so, so basically they, they're not actively, um, having a flare up, but they, their body has seen the, the, uh, the virus and has run into it at some point or another. And then there's also the surface antibody. Um, and in that case, the uh, surface antibody is, if that's positive, and that's the only one that's positive out of those three that I just mentioned, that just means the patient has, has received uh, immunization against hep, uh, hep B. So surface, surface antibody, immunization, core antibody is going to be um, past infection that's resolved most likely, uh, and then the surface antigen being positive is an acute um, infection or an active infection. I look at these hepatitis panels literally every day, um, and anytime one is positive, I always have to look it up to make sure I'm looking at it right, because I'm like, wait a minute, which one does this refer to? It's very difficult to distinguish. So on a normal panel, you're, you're going to see those three that Mike mentioned. Um, if, you, um, if you have uh, a significant concern for Hep B, or you need to go ahead and uh, distinguish um, acute from chronic infection, you may also get the IgM antibody to the, you might get a draw for the IgM antibody to the hepatitis B core antigen, and that'll should tell you if um, if it's positive, then it indicates a recent infection of Hep B in the last six months or so. Um, so the diagnosis of chronic Hep B. So how are we determining that it is um, chronic Hep B? So the persistence of the Hep B surface antigen for greater than six months. So that means that the Infection did not resolve on its own, um, and so patients with chronic Hep B are going to be the 5% or so um, where it doesn't resolve on its own, and they're going to continue to have it. Um, and uh, not everybody needs to be screened for that, but a number there are some high-risk situations where people do need to be screened, like if they have HIV and you want to make sure that they don't also have Hep B um, uh, inmates, um, household contacts of people who are positive for Hep B, people who may be sharing needles or sexual contact with people who are positive for Hep B, um, those who have ever injected drugs. Um, the reason, for instance, that I see patients getting the panels all the time is because um, certain medications can be high risk for reactivating Hep B or reactivating a viral infection like tuberculosis too. Um, so a lot of monoclonal antibodies, it'll be part of the um, the workup before they start them to to screen for Hep B and make sure that it is not um, that a patient doesn't have chronic Hep B to prevent a reactivation of that. So, is, do you want to go into the, treating patients and, and you know the medication options for chronic Hep B? Um, at this point, I, we're running out of time, so we probably need to jump into some of these different treatment options in this setting of, of chronic Hep B. Um, Entecavir being one of the 
the most commonly used agents. Um, Tenofovir is another one, which I'm sure that you're more familiar with that one if you've managed hip, um, or HIV patients. And uh, Truvada is, is a brand name that can uh, medication for PrEP, and um, uh, it can be a backbone for therapy for HIV. So it's a very commonly used medication. But I feel like that's sometimes we forget that it's also used um, not in a combination form, but as, as standalone therapy in hip B. But uh, tenofovir um, and then and tecovir are usually the two go-to options for uh, a lot of cases. Um, the tenofovir, if you remember, there's the tenofovir disoprosal fumarate, which is the older version, um, and, and that was one that had the long-term complications of like nephrotoxicity and reducing bone mineral density and because of those side effects and, and especially in the HIV patient population, you know, they ended up coming up with a, a newer pro-drug f- form that is referred to as tenofovir alafenamide. That one has a lot less likelihood of, of the kidney toxicity and um, bone mineral density loss. And, and we know especially in the HIV studies, it's, it's a longer term safety data is a lot better, but um, both forms are still used in hep B as well. Um, but just kind of keep that in mind that the alafenamide formulation is available uh, for hep B as well as HIV. Interestingly. So if you think about hep C treatment and all of the um, developments we've had of that over the last 10 to 15 years and the treatments being 8 and 12 weeks and we have a cure. So hep B in a lot of instances for the patients that we are going to treat, the treatment is much longer, multiple years, um, sometimes indefinite. Um, and we don't treat everybody with chronic hep B. Um, so uh, they will get a um, hepatitis B virus DNA kind of load um, to evaluate their, their viral load and they'll also look at um, their ALT, and that kind of determines who should be treated. So, for instance, um, with a um, hepatitis B virus DNA that's greater than 20,000, um, but they have an ALT that's less than two times the upper limits of normal, um, in many instances they won't recommend treatment because current treatment has relatively low efficacy, um, and uh, it might only be considered in those who um, are older, um, who have family history of um, uh, other liver issues, or if they, um, if the individual patient has signs of um, fibrosis or a concern for cirrhosis and that sort of thing. Um, if they are greater than two times the upper limit of normal, a lot of times they will, um, and these are patients who don't have cirrhosis, they will observe for three to six months if it's compensated, um, and they'll treat um, if there's no spontaneous hepatitis B um, antigen loss, so they if they don't um, convert uh, away. Um, you would treat immediately in this instance if there's severe hepatitis flare, um, and as far as the preferred initial therapies, entecavir and tenofovir, like Mike said, are probably going to be the, the primary therapies. These you would continue for at least 12 months um, after the um, seroconversion of the hepatitis B antigen. Um, if it's PEG interferon, it would be a 48-week treatment course is what they'd be limited to. Um, and then there's various other recommendations for patients who have cirrhosis. For instance, the ALT doesn't matter if the patient has cirrhosis. Um, they're going to be treated, and it might need to be indefinite treatment. 
there's some other options as well that you may see floating around. Um, these medications are probably familiar to you, but again, more probably from the HIV side of things. But lamuvidine is one potential option that you'll see being used for chronic Hep B, but it has been compared um, to Intecavir, and it has some outcomes were somewhat similar, but tends to, to have a better suppression of the, the Hep B viral load, um, Intecavir does, compared to lamuvidine. And um, some other outcomes were a little bit better um, in the Intecavir groups. So lamuvidine is kind of one of those situations where we, we ideally wouldn't use it as a first-line agent in a lot of patients. Now, there are patients that you may be treating from a chronic hep B standpoint, but they've had previous treatments, and lamuvidine may have been one of them. Um, if that's the case, uh, then Intecavir you know, you want to still take into consideration the, the resistance and all that. Um, and, and Tecavir can be used if, if uh, patients have resistance to, for example, um, Adafavir, which is another potential option we'll talk about. But in the case of somebody who's had prior resistance to lamuvidine, especially if it's been documented, um, confirmed resistance, then Tecavir should not be used in those patients as an alternative. We would want to try something else. Want to talk about the vaccines? Yeah, go ahead, go for it. We're running out of time, aren't we? Oh no, we're doing okay. Okay, um, do, let's touch on uh, Adafavir. Do you have anything on Adafavir, real quick? By any chance? Um, I didn't, unless you did. I just, just of note, um, because it is another potential option, um, it has also been compared to Intecavir, and Intecavir was associated with a, a greater degree of reduction as far as the um, DNA viral load, and uh. Yeah, it just seems to be more more effective. So it's out there, but Etecavir has superior data, it looks like. Um, so I'll tell you about some of the Hep B vaccines and some of the schedules, because this is, this is one of those where if you've ever had a, a child, uh, uh, very early on they're going to get stabbed a lot, and it just makes your life in the hospital so much more difficult. Um, anecdote number two, it wasn't Wait, a vaccine. They're going to get stabbed a lot? They're going to get sticked with a lot of things in their first oh, couple gotcha. of days of life in the yeah, hospital. Yeah, 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 gotcha. I'm and, with you now. And one of these happens to be the, the Hep B vaccine. Yes. Um, when we were in the hospital, Anna says it was the first night. I swear it was the second night. They had to take um, some blood from Nathan's like foot, I guess, that you know that's where they draw it, and the individual... Yeah, like took it and messed up basically. And so later on, they couldn't get his labs. And so later on, just in the middle of the night, when we finally had gotten him to sleep, they had to, they had to wake him up and do another stick. And then he did not go back to sleep. And we obviously did not get any sleep. And I haven't, I've never in my life been just at my wits end where I, I literally couldn't stay awake. Like nothing, nothing in the world could keep me, awake even like the life of my child could not keep me awake and i i like had to fall asleep and anna, anna looked at the nurse and she was like can you take our baby for a couple hours because we have to go to sleep and it was because they had to stick this, this my kid a couple times because of this thing so um the hepatitis b vaccine is one of those that your kid is probably going to get um uh, very early on so for um infants who are under a year of age um, there's a few different vaccines. Um, so there's the a th there's a three dose vaccine series, and that could be Ingrix B 
or the Recombivax HB vaccines. So the first dose or the birth dose is given within the first 24 hours of birth. The second dose is given one month after the first dose is given, and then the third dose is given six months after the first dose was given, not six months after the second dose, six months after dose one. Um, there's also a four-dose combination for infants. There's um, there's a pentavalent or a hexavalent vaccine options. These are Vaxellus and Pediorix. So they contain things that aren't just um, uh, hepatitis B. Um, and over the course of the the series, they're going to become um, vaccinated for other diseases. But in that first 24 hours of birth, they're going to get a monovalent hepatitis B vaccine. But then at six weeks, they'll get a combination vaccine. At 14 weeks, they get another combination vaccine. And at six months, they get another combination vaccine. So those are options for infants. For individuals over a year, all the way up to adulthood, so pretty much anybody else, um, there's a three-dose option and a two-dose option. I think, Mike, you were referencing the two-dose option earlier. As we were, I think we were just talking about one of them we thought might have been a little bit better. And I think the reason might have been because you only have to get two doses of it. But... Um, so the three-dose series, there's a number of, of um, brand names, Ingrix B, again, Recombivax HB, again, and then the twin Ricks that I referenced earlier, the combination Hep B, Hep a, Hep B vaccine. Still, it's only for 18 years and older, but these are three-dose options. You would get your first dose, you would get your second dose one month after the first dose, and then your third dose would be six months after the first dose. Um, but then there's um, one of them, which is called the Hepislav B, and this is only for adults, only 18 years and older, but it's the only two-dose option of the Hep B series. Um, so you would get one dose now, and then you'd get another dose in a month. Boom. Done. <laughs> vaccinated. Done. Um, so that does feel like kind of a pleasant <coughs> option, the Hepislav B option. Yeah. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time talking about Intecavir. So I do want to mention a couple of things to close up with. Um, for one, the the box warning, and, and actually this would apply to Tenofovir as well. And this, I heard this brought up, and especially in the setting of a patient who has HIV with concomitant Hep B, because you may have those patients who are on. Um, you know, tenofovir, emtricitabine is like their backbone for HIV therapy, and they're kind of killing two birds with one stone, if you if you will, by utilizing the tenofovir is for the Hep B as well. But then with these, some of these newer HIV meds that are potentially you know being patients are being switched to, like the um, you know the injections and things like that there's could be a situation where you you know stop something like tenofovir abruptly or even in the setting of just you know hep b by itself if the patient's been on a uh, entecavir or tenofovir and then you stop it abruptly you could um, cause a severe acute exacerbation of hep b and if you do abruptly discontinue the the medication so obviously monitoring patients, you know, hepatic function as well as like their clinical signs and symptoms, and then you know watching them fairly closely, especially after you've discontinued any of their Hep B medications, uh, would be an important thing to to kind of be aware of. And they, it's a box warning um, on Intecavir and Tenofovir. Um, some other things to be aware of, as far as you know, just the. Um, more common adverse effects, if you will. The GI issue, some people will, will experience um, some abdominal pain or diarrhea, but it's, it's usually a lower percentage compared to some of the other antivirals that are out there. Hyperglycemia um, can be a concern to, to some extent. Um, patients may um, experience fatigue. 
patients can also, um, in post-marketing studies, there's been some evidence that thrombocytopenia, insomnia, um, some of those types of our outliners, uh, outlying adverse effects can be out there. But, um, you know, overall, it's pretty well tolerated. Um, you know, nothing is, a, there's not huge glaring side effects that a lot of people complain about. It. It's usually pretty well tolerated. Last thing I'll mention is if someone is um, infected with Hep B, it's important to mention a few things to them, like to prevent worsening liver disease, avoid alcohol use, also get your Hep A vaccination just to try to uh, do whatever you can to prevent any other viral injury or hepatic injury, and also take steps to reduce transmission to others because you can obviously be contagious. Yeah. Anything else you want to go over with this stuff, man? I think that about covers it for me. All right. Well, make sure that all of you who are free C members go get your one-hour continuing education credit. And for those of you who are not, go check out Free C's website anyway and see what you think. See if it's something you think that you would benefit from. Definitely have a, a lot of really good material, not just our podcast, but all kinds of good stuff on there. So thanks to them for sponsoring or for partnering with us again. Um, also, thanks to the podcast sponsors, Pearls. If you haven't had a, a chance to check out their app yet, they've added a whole bunch of new stuff already for the first of the year. So Pearls, P-Y-R-L-S dot com slash core consult Rx, an up and coming and, and fast uh, growing fast drug info application. And they also have a desktop component as well. Now you can use. And then uh, actually got a text from one of our sponsors in the middle of uh, the podcast. But um, for those of you who have remember when we had Dr. Alex Poppin on the show, um, he has, has written a book um, basically summarizing uh, over 150 landmark clinical studies. And it is a great resource to use for those of you who like your evidence-based medicine and are, you know, trying to keep keep uh, all of your landmark trials um, you know, sort of together and organized. Um, you know, the, the, his book is, is fantastic, and it, it's very affordable too. But for those of you who are on the fence about it, he has been gracious enough to sponsor the podcast and allow for anyone who's a Patreon member and is a annual subscriber. So it's like the $30 fee to get access to all of the Patreon um, lectures and PowerPoint slides and all that. Uh, for the annual members, he's letting me give a free digital copy of his book. Um, it, his book's called High Powered Medicine. I'm not sorry. I don't know if I actually said the title. But like I said, it's a digital copy, over 150 landmark studies that are, he summarizes. And uh, yours free if you join Patreon, if you're not already, and sign up as an annual member. Um, the Patreon, for those of you who don't know, is just a, a way to, to listen to more concise and lecture-style content without having to hear our commentary and, you know, us fooling around. So for those of you who want to check out that, patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. And if you have any questions, suggestions, uh, anything like that that you want to relate to, Cole or myself, social media platforms, are you can reach us on any of those. The emails in the show notes will be available. Also, a phone number um, that you can send texts to uh, will also be in the show notes below. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you do have anything you want to share with us, we'd love to hear it. And we will see you all in the next episode. Have a good night.